Good morning. John chapter 9 is where you can be finding in your Bibles. We'll begin here just a few minutes at verse 8. John 9, 8. Last week, a man was healed who had been blind from birth. It was quite a thing for us to see. And what we'll find this week and next week is we're going to get to sit and just watch as a series of events unfold in front of us as a result. It's important that we have in mind, though, as we start to see this, what we're actually seeing. We are seeing what happened to him as a result. But I'd suggest to you that we're seeing more than just that. We are going to find, as we watch this play out, real expectations about the Christian life that we can gain by watching these events in this man's life. These are not just meant as bare descriptions of what happened to him. This man is going to become, for us, a walking manifestation of the results of being saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, being given eyes to see. Now, that's a claim, that's a statement that I feel the need to defend a little bit as we begin. And I think I feel that need because it's very easy for us to do something similar to that with the scriptures in a way that can actually disrespect God's word. We can come to the Bible and read and read with an eye of simply expectation that it's really just telling me something about me. I'm really the main object here. We can read the story of Daniel and conclude that the point is dare to be a Daniel. You've heard those sorts of, of emphases. Um, and while in that one, while Daniel may in fact be an example of bravery, faithfulness, uh, in such instances, it would be unfaithful for us to come to those passages placing the emphasis there if we're trying to do justice to the text of Scripture. I want to suggest that what we're going to do this morning in seeing these things is not that. It's different than that. It's different because Jesus himself is going to point to this as intended to be something exemplary for us, something of an instructive demonstration. I think we'll see that in a number of places, but even as we begin, I would just point out to you, we can see it in what Jesus says before and after the events that unfold. We saw last week in verses 3 to 5, for example, that Jesus had explicitly described his purpose as the light of the world coming to display God's works. So Jesus is not doing what he's doing here because he's a nice guy and he wants to do a random act of kindness. He's doing this as the light of the world who has been sent to do the works of God. And what he does in this man's life is a display of the works of God and the result of those works. So what he says before this is a piece of evidence I would suggest. And what he says after it as well. Look at how this account is going to end down in verse 39. He's healed the man of his blindness. But down in verse 39, he's going to again find the man and guide him to put his saving faith upon him as the Christ. And the man will have then given this gospel's first public worship of Jesus. It's just an amazing sight that we'll see next week. But look at what he says in verse 39. He says, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. 
Now, in the context there, it is very clear. He's not talking about physical sight as he makes that statement, is he? The physical sight he's granted is certainly a representation, a manifestation. He's not talking about physical sight. He's talking about spiritual sight. The ability to actually perceive themselves, the world, God, rightly. Jesus says, that's why I've come. And he doesn't say that after healing the man's eyes. He says that after becoming the object of the man's faith and worship. And after the Pharisees have revealed their own true colors. He says, what I've just done here is a manifestation of why I have come. So again, I think these sorts of things make clear that Jesus' work with this man and what happens to him is meant to hold out to us what happens when God comes and works in the life of a sinner. We can expect some of these things to transfer, in other words. And when we notice that, we're not making it up and we're not placing ourselves unduly into the spotlight. What we're going to see as the scene plays out, then, is we're seeing results that can be expected whenever Christ opens the eyes of the blind. Before we go any further, let's read the account this morning. We read the entire thing last week. This morning, I think we'll just read from verse 8 down to verse 23. This is the the piece of the account that we will be looking at this morning. 8 to verse 23. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees, the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. 
when the Redeemer from God chooses to open our eyes, what can we expect? We see, in fact, a series of answers to that question as we just watch this man and how the world responds to him going forward. We'll see three answers to that question this week and three next week. That's what we're planning here. The first answer that we see is maybe of all of them the most of something of an analogy, but I do think very much that it's an intentional one in the text. We see it in verses 8 to 12. What we see is we can expect, if God opens our eyes in this world, that we will be increasingly unrecognizable to the world. Look again at verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. This is a good place to remind us all that John, as he lays out this narrative, is choosing the details to include, isn't he? There's plenty of things that happen, details that happen in these things that don't make it into the description. He's choosing how to lay out this story to us. So why this? Why include the confusion, the back and forth, as to whether this is even actually the same man or not? It's a similar question to one thing we noticed last week. You remember when Jesus directed him to go to the pool of Siloam and wash? This is, he knew right where to go. It was not a, a foreign place. They all understand where the pool of Siloam is and what it is. But John felt the need to translate for the reader that the word Siloam means sent. Well, why? That doesn't do anything for us in terms of the events of the story. But we saw last week, didn't we? It just is one more tag on this incredible theme that what is coming to mankind is coming because God has sent Jesus into the world. So John includes it in there, uh, the translation of the word, in order to further the point that he is making. In other words, as he does these sorts of things, John himself is doing what he's doing regarding explaining how these things lay out in order to teach. He's teaching as he gives us these details. What is he teaching us as he tells us that when this man came back and his neighbors found him, they began to argue about whether this was the same guy or not? Well, it's telling us about how profound the effect is of what Jesus has done in his life. I mean, the healing of his vision affects him so profoundly You can think of his mannerisms, his way of movement, his facial expressions. Can you imagine how much it would change a person in front of you if they suddenly can see and interact with that sight for the first time in their life? It's such a profound effect that the people that see him every day are genuinely arguing about whether it's the same man or not. It's a massive transformation. And what the neighbors want to know is what everyone else today is going to want to know as well. And I'm going to speak about these events as if they happened on the same day. They may likely have happened on the same day. It's possible in the rest of this this account that some days pass. We're not told. But I'll speak of it as if it's the same day. Everyone else today is going to want to know the same thing. The question he's going to receive over and over is the question, how? How, verse 10, they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? How, verse 15, 
How, verse 26, how did this man do this? And he tells them what he knows in verse 11. He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Now, in terms of the ways that we're saying this morning that this account describes what we as believers can expect, we're really finding here, given to us by John, uh, an application as to uh, how Jesus changes the lives of those he reaches. And it's not, of course, going to be the same sort of appearance as what we find in this man, is it? But it's not hard to apply this picture to every single one of us who've come to know the Lord. What doesn't apply to us directly, of course, is the immediacy of this event. Such transformation is not immediately evident to all around us as it would have been with this man. There's probably no two of us here this morning for whom the work of Christ in our lives has impacted us in exactly the same way, at the same length of time, in the same spheres of our life. No two of us will show the same picture in that way. But it does give us a universal, it gives us something that the scriptures over and over again promise to us. Just consider what God's word tells us about the way that coming to know the Lord and be washed in his blood changes a person. Galatians 2.20, Paul will say, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 6.14 will speak of the cross as that by which, he says, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Such a fundamental change that has taken place. We'll read later in this gospel, John 15.19, these words, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And we've already seen in this study that the world loves you when you belong to it. But such is the change that the entire system of rebellion around us now looks at us and hates what it sees. That means it sees something very different than it saw before that so pleased it. Paul will write in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I mean, it's just as clear as day. The light that comes into our lives is a light that transforms. So that in some sphere of our life, at some point in our life, as by the Spirit, we are putting off our old selves and putting on the new self, to use Ephesians 4's language, the people who knew us and who know us still begin to ask, I'm not sure I even know you anymore. Who, who is this standing in front of me? Who are you? It's true in this man's life, and we're promised that as we continue to live in this life now as servants of the Lord, as slaves of Christ instead of as slaves to sin, we will become increasingly unrecognizable to the now hostile world around us. 
There's another result that we see as we watch this man. We see it in verses 13 to 17. The second result is this. We can expect that the ways of our Lord are going to be called into question as we represent him and bear witness to him in this life. Now, it's helpful at this point to notice something of a parallel here. He, he's asked the question, how? We just saw in verse 10, right? He's asked that question again in verse 15 by the Pharisees. Same question, and he'll really give the same answer. But what's going to be important is to, to notice the two different responses that come from his answer. So the neighbors here respond in verse 12. He tells them what happened, and here their response. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. At hearing what Jesus has done, this immediately produces in them the desire to go find this man. Probably to hear more from him, don't you think? To ask him questions, to consider him. Now, people have flocked to Jesus following his miracles this whole time in John's gospel, haven't they? That has not been described as a good thing most of those times, a good sign Jesus repeatedly keeps people at arm's length who do that because he knows what's in their hearts. So this is not necessarily at all a statement of saving faith in these neighbors, but at least it's a reaction that senses something proper about seeing something like this and going to the man himself. Now compare that with what follows. Look at verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. If you've been with us in this study, this might be reminding you of places that we've already seen in the past. But here, John walks us through this process. It's very helpful how he presents this. John is so good at what he's doing as he lays out these events for us. The events of the miracle produce in these neighbors the desire to get some spiritual insight into what has happened. Now, they have no idea how to think about this. They want to go talk to Jesus, but he doesn't know where Jesus is, and they are full of questions. And so they go to an authority that they have been told for all their lives they can trust. Unfortunately for them, it's the Pharisees who occupy that role in their lives. We know what's going to happen. There's no evidence at all that these neighbors had any idea that something bad was going to happen to this, to this uh, neighbor of theirs who has been healed when they bring him to the Pharisees. Commentators say things like, uh, they simply wanted advice from their local synagogue leaders. Or, they probably felt that there must be a religious aspect to the cure, and the Pharisees would be the ones to pronounce on such an aspect. So this is what they do, and I called it unfortunate. It's very unfortunate, because these are the ones that Jesus, in Matthew 15, 14, calls, ironically with this story, calls the blind guides of the blind. They have come with great confusion in need of explanation and understanding, and they've come to the blind guides of the blind for answers. They present him, and he goes before this group of Pharisees. And John gives us the pertinent fact here that the healing had happened on a Sabbath day. So when the man tells them that Jesus put mud on his eyes, 
which Jesus had made, in verse 14, applied it to his eyes and healed him, Jesus has now become guilty in their eyes of not just one violation, but maybe as many as three violations. D.A. Carson explains this well. Listen to how he um, lays out this legal situation. He says, healing itself was forbidden, except for cases where life itself was in danger, an exception inapplicable here since the man was born blind. Moreover, amongst the prohibited categories of work was kneading. We saw that last week, right? K-N-E-A-D. Uh, and making mud from spittle and dirt might well have struck the leaders as, following, as falling under that prohibition. And finally, there was a division of opinion amongst the authorities as to whether or not anointing the eyes was legal on the Sabbath. The combination of these factors transformed the sense of open, probing amazement they should have experienced into suspicion, doubt, and theological umbrage. They hear the details of work, mud-making, healing. And for some of the Pharisees, the verdict is instantaneous. There's nothing else they need to hear. This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Now, we get here a very rare moment. We learn that there was a division about Jesus among the Pharisees at this moment. When else have you heard that laid out? But it happens here. Some of the Pharisees reasoned about these things and how they ought to think about them from a very different place, a different starting point. Some of them wondered whether that should be the way they judged the situation. It continues like this. But others said, others of the Pharisees, said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? We almost never get insight into the presence of internal disagreement among the Pharisees about Jesus. And in fact, we know that by now the public consensus is already manifestly in opposition to him. Because verse 22 tells us they had already formally condemned in that local area the equating of Jesus with the Christ. You'll be put out of the synagogue if you're found to be saying that. And this particular situation is going to end with them collectively casting the man out of the synagogue. And yet we know, don't we? For example, think of Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's going to be called in John 19 a disciple of Jesus. We've seen him in an underhanded way come to Jesus' defense already in recent chapters. We know that there wasn't complete like-mindedness among them. And what we're hearing in verse 16 are the, the, the opposing methods of reasoning here. Now, in this, we need to slow down and understand this, because I think this is very important for us, to hear how they are reasoning. We can learn from both sides of this debate in terms of how they have chosen to interpret what they are seeing, how they're reasoning through what they're witnessing in Jesus. So there's two groups here. The first group approach things like this. They had decided to base all considerations about what they would see on the way the rabbis had interpreted the Old Testament. If a man did not keep the Sabbath according to their understanding of Sabbath keeping, he could not possibly be from God. Those interpretations were beyond reproach or consideration. It was simple as that. The second group, notice, involved 
their method involved an openness to the notion that Jesus was doing these things. Notice they say signs, plural, not just this one, but they've been paying attention. They're reasoning like this. Jesus is doing these things that seem very much to bear the mark of the power of God. So they ask, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And by sinner, we need to understand they're simply making a distinction as to whether someone is approved of by God or not. Has this person been given a stamp of divine commissioning and approval? Now, what is really interesting about this debate is that both of these groups have something right and something wrong. I read this week from a man named Colin Cruz. He expressed this very well, although many others have noticed the same thing. This is a little bit long, but let me read to you what he, what he said in explaining this situation. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. For them, the overriding concern was Sabbath observance. No matter what miraculous signs Jesus performed, he could not possibly be from God because he violated God's law. Listen to this. Such reasoning, though based on a false interpretation of Sabbath law, follows the warnings found in Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 to 5. There the people of Israel are warned about those who perform miraculous signs and at the same time lead people away from God. Such people were to be put to death because they preached rebellion against the Lord. Some of the the Pharisees appear to have interpreted Jesus' actions that way. He had performed a miracle, but he also broke the Sabbath. He must be a sinner and therefore could not be from God. But others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? For the second group, the nature of Jesus' signs, especially the healing of a man born blind, forced them to ask whether one who did such things could possibly be described as a violator of the law. Their reasoning was defective because false prophets sometimes produce miracles, as Deuteronomy 13 tests, though their conclusion was correct. Because of differing opinions, they were divided, end quote. That man is referencing Deuteronomy 13. That's what Ryan read to us earlier before we began here. It's a companion test in the Old Testament for prophets with that of Deuteronomy 18. You test the prophet's words by his signs, and you test his signs by his words. So if he gives a miraculous sign that does indeed come to pass, but then counsels rebellion against the Lord, put that prophet to death. That's what they're commanded. Now, the reason I think that's so helpful here for us is that it really clarifies things. To be able to understand the first group is reasoning correctly, to not simply stop at the witnessing of a miraculous sign itself. They need to discern whether the one performing the sign is leading them away from the further revelation of God. The problem for them is one that has plagued even the church at various points in history. They're suffering from an inability to distinguish revelation from tradition. They've equated the two. Any other times in church history where that has been a bit of a problem? To them, the tradition of rabbinic interpretation was so ironclad as to be beyond reproach. You might remember their defective interpretations of the law was just what Jesus had pointed to back in chapter 7 of this gospel. John 7, 21 to 24. 
And right above that, we had heard him calling on the people to be Bereans. Do you remember that? To go beyond a basic superficial handling of the scriptures and to dig and search and understand. This is what they were required to do. Understand the message of God's revelation. This man does not keep the Sabbath. He's already demonstrated to them in chapter 7 how contradictory their own understanding of Sabbath is. But that ship had sailed for them. And I don't want to belabor the point for us this morning because it's not the main focus of the text. But I trust that we have some sense of how important this is for us. That we stand as Christians ready and willing always to be corrected by Scripture. There is a great deal of usefulness in tradition. And in some ways, I might tend to make that point more than, than others do sometimes. Though there's a great deal of protection, I think, that God has granted to his people in things like the historic creeds and confessions that he's given to the church. Nonetheless, historicity is not a norming norm. Scripture is the norming norm. These things are spoken of in that language sometimes, and well, so it's often said, creeds are normative for the church, but the Bible is the norming norm. Because the Bible is the norming norm that stands over and judges creeds and confessions. It's a distinction that we must hold dear as we seek to follow God and to submit to his word. Now, in terms of what these Pharisees say in verse 16, you have Jesus called into question, don't you? By both groups. His goodness is called into question in the case of the first group. But his legitimate connection with divine revelation is potentially called into question in the second. And the division is one they can't immediately resolve. It seems to leave them pretty exasperated because of what it leads them to do. Do you see what they do as a result? They turn to the man, the beggar, and ask him for his opinion. That's supposed to be unexpected to us. I think it exposes the, uh, the goings-on in their own minds as they're wrestling here. They ask the man himself for an opinion about Jesus. And even as he has heard all the debate and uncertainty among those with this authority in front of him, he replies with complete conviction in verse 17. He is a prophet. That's who you're dealing with. This is a prophet. It's the same verdict that the Samaritan woman gave initially after hearing from Jesus. Remember, she was quite rude and uh, disrespectful until Jesus revealed something of himself to her in his words. And in John 4.19, she immediately concludes, I perceive that you are a prophet. That was her first interaction. By the, by the end, she and her entire town are declaring Jesus the savior of the world. But it started with this recognition of his being a legitimate messenger of God. And that's what this man says. He is a prophet. That statement doesn't particularly seem to offend or scandalize the Pharisees. I find that interesting. It's really just deciding with the second group of them in this debate, isn't it? Who are considering that very possibility. Could he be a prophet from God? So to recap here, notice we have seen, as a result of this man's transformation, we've seen a diminishing recognition of him on the part of the world. 
we have also seen the world call the works of the Lord into question. Right in front of this man who is the very recipient of those works. It couldn't possibly be exactly as we have been told that it was. There's just no way that this could be. The third thing that we see as to what we can expect when our eyes are opened, we find beginning in verse 18, and this will take us into next week as well, we find that the world will apply pressure to deny him. There's division among the Pharisees, but from verse 18 on, they are spoken of as a unified group. That division does not come back up again. Maybe the second group was dissuaded. Maybe they were strong-armed. But what follows is a two-step approach on their part collectively that represents the position of that first group. First group won in this debate in terms of how they are going to proceed as leadership. A two-step approach. The first step is aimed at the man's parents. And its goal is to cast doubt on the very occurrence of the miracle itself. Verse 18, they decide that the answer must be that they cannot reconcile all of this because it's a sham. It must be that he wasn't even blind in the first place. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. And to confirm that suspicion, they summon the man's parents. Verse 19, and they ask him, is this your son whom you say was born blind? How then does he now see? I wonder if this is the problem with written text, right? You can't hear tones of voice and see facial expressions. That's why I hate text messages, but it's pretty necessary these days, I guess. Can, can you hear a skeptical tone in the question that they're asking? I mean, they literally put in there the words you say. Who you say was born blind? And then the follow-up question right on its heels, how then does he now see? They're declaring that they question the whole thing. And it seems like they're saying that the burden of proof is on his parents to prove how this could have happened, if they're going to believe it. I mean, it's quite a position to try to put these parents into. Not to mention the elephant in the room of the legitimate legal pressure of verse 22. They know that as they're answering this question before these religious leaders, that if they say something that is construed as giving too much glory to Jesus, they could be cast out of the synagogue, which we'll talk about next week, but it's not a small deal at all. That's a big deal. So in a sense, we can understand why they reply the way they do. It's a very sad thing to see, to be sure. They throw their son under the bus. But we can understand the pressure that they are sensing. They answer what they know is safe to answer. They answer what others have already answered by now. That this man, yes, really is their son. And that yes, he really was born blind. But, verse 21, but how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. I'm not going to say whether or not it was that man Jesus. I wasn't there. I don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. Now we're going to continue next week to see these results of restored sight laid out in front of us. We'll be picking up right here in the middle of this third one. Because we're only just beginning to see the pressure that they are applying to deny Jesus' work. 
so far only applying it to his parents. But in terms of what we've already seen this morning, already we're starting to hear what this entire account is going to be driving us toward by the end. We hear it in the division among the Pharisees, in the clear and deep confusion that they show about how to think about all of this. If it could be that wondrous things can be done and displayed by people whom we ought not to trust or listen to, then how do we ever know what to do? Another way to say that is to think not just in terms of a person leading astray, but even just our interpretation of particular events in life. Things happen to us when no one is saying anything, and I have to interpret how I am to think about these things. How do I know whether I'm thinking well, correctly? What we read in Deuteronomy 13 when it described the situation of somebody performing a sign and then proving untrustworthy, God said to them there these words. He said, For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and, keep, and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. What will characterize a child of God whose eyes he has opened as they make their way through life? One thing's for sure, you and I could both bear witness to the fact that it won't be characterized by the perfectly right, straight, correctly chosen path from the beginning to the end. It sure won't be characterized by that, will it? If that's what you think, then I can count on one hand the number of years you've known the Lord to be sure, maybe half a hand, we figure out quite quickly as Christians whose eyes are opened that we are fully capable of wandering, of making the wrong decisions. So that's not what characterizes us. What will characterize us? Our ambition as, child, as children of God is going to be to walk after the Lord and fear him. That will be our ambition. That will be our clear answer to the question of what is the right and wise path to follow. To walk after him and fear him. Now we will do that imperfectly. And yet as we do that imperfectly and we end up walking away instead of toward, we will hear his voice as he calls us. And he will call us. Always he will be the good shepherd that he's about to tell us that he is. Calling us back. And we will retrace our steps to find the way. Our Lord Jesus Christ most certainly will be called into question. His revelation will be called into question. His own goodness will be called into question. His authority over our lives. We will be pressured in any of those ways or all of them to deny him. The world has always sought either to flatter or intimidate the followers of Christ into silence. And what we'll see next week is that we will know what to do because we will have placed our trust in the voice of God's revelation as the sure guide of our lives. We'll find as we see the outcome of these events 
that true knowledge for the Christian, true knowledge involves choosing the right voice to listen to and trusting. The world is full of clouds without rain, isn't it? And food that does not satisfy. You will have no shortage of alternatives presented to you in this world. Competitors. But it is the words of Jesus Christ that are spirit and life, as we've been told in John 6, 63. It is of the person of Jesus Christ that the voice from heaven declared in Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Listen to him. And when our Lord opens our eyes, he also opens our ears. His sheep hear his voice and they listen to him. That is what characterizes them. Sheep wander, but some sheep belong to the good shepherd. And he will not let them wander forever. He will pursue in love. and in patience, and he will call, and we will hear him. And we will know, even in those times when we are rebellious, and we don't want to come, we will know one thing for sure, that is the voice of truth. That is the voice of safety. We know the pain of it when he has to come all the way to get us, and he has to use that crook in his, uh, in his staff sometimes. He has promised to care for us as his sheep, hasn't he? And his sheep hear his voice. His sheep recognize his voice as the definition of truth and goodness and safety. I'm thankful to God for what he is beginning to lay out for us this week and into next week. That this is simply what life is for those whom he has chosen to open their eyes. To give them life and light. We face many trials and difficulties and yet one thing is certain. We have a good shepherd who guides and leads us with his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we do each week, we thank you for the light of your word. We thank you for the food of your word, for the life-giving power that it is for us. Thank you for gathering us here again this week to see the shining of that light and life in the lives of our brothers and sisters around us, to find the lights that shine dimly so that we might surround them with love and, and encouragement, to lift our voices together, thanking you for the light that you have given us that we did not deserve or earn Father, we thank you for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we do pray, Father, that as we walk through this life being led by your Spirit, that we would be looking, praying even, for the ways that we are changing by the effect of your merciful grace on our lives. God, help us to find those places where we do continue, if we're honest. We do continue to put on displays that look very worldly. Help us to hate indwelling sin. Help us to despise the existence and the presence of worldliness in our thinking and in our living and in our speech. 
Help us to root those things out and to mortify the flesh. And to do it all for the glory of your name. Lord, we thank you for your promises to us. That you will never leave us or forsake us. And that you are the one leading. Help us, Lord, every day to walk very near to your Son. And to remember with great clarity that there is only safety and blessing and joy to be found at his feet. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.